Hello, warriors and warrioresses, champions of causes and optimists, even in the face of crises. Welcome to a special episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner, and I'm here with my co-pilot, Grant Faulkner of NaNoWriMo. We're tackling a new topic today, and in part, I have an announcement to make that's tied to today's guest, and I'm hoping maybe it will inspire some of our listeners around the stories they want to tell and want to write uh, and that announcement is that She Writes Press is partnering with our friend and today's guest, Aya de Leon, to launch a climate fiction imprint in 2023. Wow, how cool and how uh, overdue it is to have a climate fiction imprint in our uh, very climatey world. I know this has been in the works for a while, uh, though, Brooke, and, and, I, and I can't think of a better partner in this than Aya, who's, who's written, you know, at least, I think, four uh, climate fiction or cli-fi novels, as they're known as. And, and she's also a longtime NaNoWriMo writer. In fact, that's how I met her. Um, and Aya and I have been on NaNoWriMo panels and NaNoWriMo webcasts together. But just to loop back to, to climate fiction, I first heard about it, I think, in 2015. And while I hear a lot about it now, it's still an emerging genre. So I'm curious, what constitutes a climate fiction novel and you know, what elements does it need to have? Well, we'll have to talk to Aya a little bit more about what elements it needs to have. You know, there are so many of these subgenres now, and I think we're always trying to categorize what we write. You know, climate fiction deals with climate change and global warming. That's sort of the simplest things. But oftentimes, um, the stories are very dystopian. That sort of is the hallmark of climate fiction. Usually, they're speculative. You know, what would happen if they imagine a future in which something happens, usually a as a result of the fallout of the climate crisis. And that's um, why I'm so excited about what we're doing, because Aya has envisioned something very different. Uh, and that's a whole imprint of stories in which humanity wins, <laughs> mm. you know, in which we confront the climate crisis in ways that collectively solve our problems instead of just, you know, spiraling into complete dystopia, which is like I said, you know, just so many of these stories and for for understandable reasons, you know, that you tend to think that things are going to fall apart when you look at the current world as it is. Yeah, that, that feels like a really important framing on this topic, Brooke. And I used to work with with Ed Finn at the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State. And he actually introduced me to the whole topic. He wrote this great piece in Medium in 2015 that really inspired me. And I urge listeners to just Google Ed Finn uh, and Medium, and you'll find that article. And he wrote in the piece, I just want to pull out this quote. He wrote, the power of speculative fiction is not to terrify us about the future, but to show us what it might look like to literally inhabit our ideas. And he called speculative fiction a contagious form of imaginative thinking. And I love this characterization because it shows how creative writing is actually a unique critical thinking tool. And he said that this form of imaginative thinking is what we need in order to solve our wicked problems like that of climate change because it really helps us fully realize what climate change means. And, and I think that's so important because too often we think of climate change like through numbers that don't mean much to most people, like that the global temperature is going to go up by two or three points in the next 50 years. Most of us don't see our lives changing if the seas rise by a few feet. And, and that's because we make meaning of life through stories 
and experiences. And that's why Cli-Fi is, is so uh, important. It's like a type of virtual reality. And actually, Ed Finn and I were working together because our organization has co-hosted an event uh, about story and science and why that's important for them to go together. So it sounds like that's what your new imprint is aiming to do as well, is to create a, a space for writers to exercise their imaginative thinking and be part of the solution through stories. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you had sent me that article a while ago. And when I read it, something clicked for me. Aya has been thinking about this topic for much longer than me. And she's written, as you said, a number of cli-fis, which could also be characterized as social justice novels. Um, And so it really did help to crystallize just how important this kind of work is, this whole idea that what we write actually does change our vision for what's possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that we can, you know, reach readers this way and storytellers really do have the power to affect change in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. So what's the imprint's name and what are you exactly looking for? Yeah, we're calling it Fighting Chance books, you know, credit due to Aya there for coming up with a great name. She'll be leading the charge on acquisitions as an executive editor. And we're going to be publishing climate fiction books in, like I said, in which the human race wins. Uh, And it's also a wholly unique model of publishing. There's zero carbon footprint, just audiobooks and eBooks. And I'm really excited about it, you know, really honored that Aya chose to partner with She Writes Press on this endeavor. Uh, Like all passion projects, this really is being solely driven by our passion at the moment. We don't have a ton of funding to make this happen, but we are going to be giving uh, the writers small advances. So it's a traditional model and I'm excited about that. But we're really taking a leap of faith that readers are going to gravitate toward these stories. Uh, And, you know, obviously what's been most popular to date in this genre, as I said, has been dystopian cli-fi books like Odds Against Tomorrow, Station Eleven, you know, they're books that are widely loved, but they obviously envision a much more horrifying future of humankind than the one that we're going to try to present as a counter narrative. Definitely. When I think of this genre, it's largely gravitated towards those negative stories, as you said, Brooke. And I think it should be said that while cli-fi is very niche and also was only coined as a sub- subgenre of fiction in relatively recently, 2007, 2008, maybe. These stories have been around for a long time. And and so credit, you know, is attributed to Margaret Atwood or Octavia Butler, I think rightfully so, for leading the way in this speculative genre. People often cite uh, Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake series as one that tackles this topic, and it's often called eco-criticism, another good word as we're mulling over how people are writing about climate these days. Yeah, totally. And um, speaking of Octavia Butler, you know, her parable of the sower was written in 1993, a cautionary tale, you know, and much of it has come to pass. And so it wasn't like so often these writers like Margaret Atwood, you know, they're seen as so prescient. um, And they are. And in this moment, we have so little time to write the wrongs. You know, we we really are up against a deadline. And Aya has made a powerful case to me that we need a literature of winning. I I just Mm -hmm. love that way of framing it. And also that we want to change the story to one of collective action and sweeping victory. So it's very inspiring. Yeah, definitely. And listeners can find out what you're doing at fightingchancebooks.com. And uh, with that, we're going to hear a bunch more about the inspiration behind this endeavor coming up shortly. We'll be right back with Aya de Leon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. It's my great honor to have Aya de Leon with us today. Aya teaches creative writing at UC Berkeley. She's an award-winning author of four climate fiction novels for adults with another underway, in addition to a YA novel, The Mystery Woman in Room 3. Aya's work has appeared in Harper's Bazaar, Ebony, Guernica, Writer's Digest, Bitch, and elsewhere. This year, Candlewick will publish Aya's first middle grade novel, which was a Junior Library Guild selection, and then the prequel next year. Aya's also working on a memoir. She organizes with the Black Hive, the climate justice formation of the Movement for Black Lives, and she writes for a major entertainment franchise. Uh, so Aya, you're writing all the time is what your bio sounds like. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, I think it's pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say this is kind of just a cool fact, which is that you are the very first guest that we are ever bringing back. And you were our second guest way back in August of 2018. Oh my God, I feel so honored. Yeah, I remember how exciting it was to talk to you all before, but I didn't realize I was like the big, doing the big repeat here. Yeah, you're doing the big repeat and gosh, 2018 feels like a lifetime ago, but um, this is particularly an honor because we're bringing you back to announce our partnership. Uh, yes. And that is that you and She Writes Press are launching Fighting Chance Books next year. And I shared a little bit before you came on about what we're doing you know, that we have this mission to publish stories in which we, humanity, actually win in the current crisis we face with the climate catastrophe. Uh, but I would love to hear in your words for you to share about how this idea came about in the first place and why it's important that we tell, write, and publish these stories. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this. Thank you. So when people think about climate fiction, when we look at the landscape out there, um, in the literary world and books, there are kind of two tracks a lot of the time. One track is, you know, really kind of lovely literary fiction that doesn't necessarily have a big mainstream audience, but is really beautifully written, complex, sort of heavy um, pondering of the nature of humanity at this crossroads. And I'm really glad that literature is being written. There's another track, really in the tradition of Octavia Butler's 1993 work, Parable of the Sower, which is set in 2024, right? Right around the corner, when the climate crisis has escalated and all of the different crises that we're actually seeing now, fascism, rising white nationalism, have escalated. And it's this sort of, you know, not quite post-apocalyptic, really, really hard landscape in this sort of, in the sci-fi fantasy genre. And, you know, this was the first of many cautionary tales around the climate crisis, like, hey, people, if we don't make changes, we could end up in a terrible situation, Right. And that was what Octavia Butler said, that her ideas came from looking around at the problems 
that were happening, imagining what hap- what would happen if people did not address them for, say, three decades, and then where would we be? And that's literally what she wrote. And many people have followed in that tradition. So we have sort of 30 years of cautionary tales. And unfortunately, when we look at what's happening with the climate crisis, 30 years of cautionary tales have not brought us the groundswell of activism that is necessary to go up against these corporations and the shady pay-to-play politicians that they buy. And I believe that what is needed is a different kind of literature. And I'm not asking people to stop writing dystopian fiction. We need those cautionary tales as well, but we need more stories and we need a greater variety of stories. And so, for example, like the the premise of these dystopias that take place in the future is that we don't act now. And so I think it's time to interrupt the climate fiction narrative that's all about how we fail in the here and now and end up in this dystopian future. In some ways, the present is a little dystopian, but the scientists all agree that if we take action in these next couple of years and make big, sweeping, challenging changes, that we have a shot at a livable future. And so I think it's really important to start writing into that future, to start writing into that future where we do fight and we do have big wins and we can make big changes. And guess what? There are still lots of stories to tell. We're up against huge, huge problems and the conflict of taking on the fight That's the story that I think is really missing for us, as opposed to the story that takes place in the future after we lose. I want a literature of winning, and I want a literature of winning that is really fun and exciting and juicy and happening in all the genres that people love reading anyway. I want romances. I want crime fiction. I want urban fiction. I want women's fiction. I want just really, really juicy page turning stories that in addition to all of the other genre conventions um, and genre tropes and deliciousness that they're bringing to their audience, that they're also bringing the story of fighting for climate justice and winning. I, you've long been involved in climate justice, uh, both writing about it and organizing. And in fact, in the spring of 2022, you organized an online conference called Black Literature versus the Climate Emergency. And I want to guide our listeners that you can find that conference on YouTube. And we'll also put the link in the show notes. Um, but more specifically, how can creative artists and writers especially contribute to the fight for climate justice? Well, I think, you know, I've been trying to contribute in two different ways. The first way is just as an activist, you know, as writers, we have lots and lots of skills around communicating and messaging that are always useful in any movement. So I want to encourage people to just, you know, see around them, among their friends and in their community, if there are groups working on taking action around the climate crisis to join them. And I think it's important in this moment to be really specific about what we mean. Because when I talk, for example, to my students about climate, you know, a lot of them will say, yes, I'm really trying to recycle. 
And I am really glad that they're trying to recycle. But the problem right now is beyond recycling. It's beyond riding your bike. It's beyond going vegan. We need global policy changes around the systems and institutions that govern the infrastructure of how we power our world and to make a shift to get that off of fossil fuels and dirty energy into renewable energy that doesn't harm the planet and warm the planet. And those fights are happening not at the level of individual consumer choice or turning out your lights. That's about joining large movements that can find ways to pressure our corporations and politicians to make these sweeping changes. But of course, as writers, and particularly as fiction writers, we can also write stories. And one of the things that I, you know, am sort of uh, living proof of is that you can be writing any book and decide to make it a climate book. So for me in 2017, um, I my heritages are African-American, Puerto Rican, and West Indian. And in 2017, when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, I had been concerned about the climate crisis, but that for me was the moment that made me into a climate activist. And I made a decision that I wanted to put climate in the center of everything I was doing. And I had a bunch of different books that I was working on, and I decided to the best of my ability to make the books I was already writing into climate books and to put climate into every book that I had in mind to write. And I was writing a feminist heist series of urban fiction that took place in New York City, and I decided to turn that into a Hurricane Maria book. Um, I was writing a spy novel about a woman who was working for the FBI and infiltrating a Black organization fighting police violence. And I decided that the organization would be both fighting police violence and fighting for climate justice. I had a romance about a hip hop artist who was on a tour. The tour was a hot mess, who was falling in love with her DJ. And uh, that was super messy. And I was like, I can make that into a climate book. I feel like I could be on a game show called Make This a Climate Justice Novel. And people could be like, what about? And I could like find an angle to make any book a climate book. Well, I, I want to transition and ask about the kinds of stories you're looking for in your role as executive editor of this imprint. What do you want to see and what qualifies as the right kind of story that we will be interested in publishing? Oh, what a great question. Well, the first thing that I want to say is that I'm thrilled to be partnering with She Writes Press and we are looking for stories by authors of all genders, right? Not just folks who identify as women or female. So that's, first of all, also we're looking for stories for adults, right? People pitch me occasionally the YA, the middle grade, and we're not looking for that. We're also not looking for nonfiction. We're just looking for fiction. And we're particularly looking for popular fiction genres, Crime fiction, romance, sci-fi fantasy. I'm going to put a little caveat. I'll return to that. Women's fiction, urban fiction. We want the kinds of stories that have really mass appeal. 
because we need to be building a mass movement to take on the climate crisis. So we want stories that are broadly appealing. In terms of sci-fi fantasy, the most important thing in our brand is that the stories need to take place in the here and now using the scientific reality of what we have at our disposal, right? Because we want these stories to inspire people to become active in the climate crisis. So if people use superpowers to solve things, people in the present will not have access to that. Or if it takes place 10 years in the future, that's not a here and now story. Um, If people are in the future and they find a time portal to come back here to take the action they wish they had taken, I'm totally open to that story. Other stories that I'm really excited about are romances, uh, love stories that take place inside of the movement for climate justice. I'm also really excited about union and labor organizing stories. The possibilities are endless, but just what's important, what's most important to me here are stories that are collective stories of people coming together and fighting and winning. Hey, I, I know you mentioned earlier that you will be publishing one of your own books for this imprint. And so I was, I was wondering if you could tell us about that uh, particular book. Um, and then will, will that be the first book of, of Fighting Chance Books? I'm super excited about the book that I'm writing. And then there's another book that um, came in that someone pitched to me that I'm in the middle of reading that I'm falling in love with. Um, And so it's a race. I'm not totally sure which book will come out first because part of fighting chance is we're responding to the climate emergency. So we really want to get these books out fast. Um, And so I don't know exactly which one will be coming out first, but they should Um, I'm hoping that both books will be coming out next year. My book is um, tentatively titled The Last Concert on Earth. And it's about a young woman who uh, has an unplanned pregnancy, who's an artist whose star is rising, and it takes place at that intersection of reproductive justice and climate justice. And part of why it's titled The Last Concert on Earth is where the book is going is to the place where we're in a just transition to uh, renewable energy. And in that initial part of the transition, you know, it's going to be really important that hospitals, nursing homes, correctional facilities, schools have enough electricity. And there may be a period of time where like a big concert with, you know, tons of amplified sound and lights um, where we might not have enough electricity for that to make sure that the essential services are met. And so I'm really looking at the idea of being an artist in that transition from, you know, music happening in this big sort of, um, heavy use electrical way to maybe it'll be about people will be in their neighborhoods and someone will have an acoustic guitar and it'll be a sing-along for a period of time until we get our technology together that we can have bigger concerts again. 
I, I mean, I've been so inspired over the past month since we started scheming about all this, just hearing you talk about the power of stories to affect meaningful change. And one of the things I've noted over and over is that you really do have such a positive take on such a challenging situation. It's obviously an existential crisis that we're facing, but I'm curious how you personally, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned being impacted by Hurricane Maria and that really changing your view on things, but had you prior to that been impacted by dystopian climate? fiction stories yourself and and how do you manage to stay positive as the clock is you know ticking and running out on us on this global challenge you know i tend to read more in the crime fiction genre lately i'm just obsessed with spy fiction um i don't tend to read sci-fi fantasy or dystopia but what I will say is I think that this question of how do we find and hold on to hope is a really important question. And one of the things for me is I am part of a peer counseling community uh, that helps people work on, you know, our own personal issues, but also looks at larger political issues and issues of oppression. And one of the connections that they made for me, uh, which was really helpful even before Hurricane Maria hit was they talked about how when we're scared, we shut down. And they really encouraged us to talk about the climate crisis, to talk about our fears around the climate crisis, and to be willing to look at it. Because if we let the fear sort of stop us from talking about it, stop us from looking at it and taking in some of the news, that we would just be frightened and frozen. So I got a head start about 10 years ago doing some of that work. The other thing that this peer counseling community shared with me that was really, really helpful was that um, when it comes to something as big, an existential threat as the climate crisis, it can trigger everyone in our early childhood material where we felt small and powerless compared to the adults around us who felt all powerful. And I think there's a lot of that going on in our lives these days. It can be, you know, in terms of the elections and politics where we feel like, oh, those politicians, you know, there's nothing you can do, as well as the climate crisis. And I think that this is a really important place for us all to take a look at what were the things that happened early in our lives that made us feel like we didn't matter, like we needed to leave decisions to people who were bigger or smarter or richer or older. And we need to reclaim our power that we, you know, those of us who look around and say, this situation is not right. The world is not right. This climate crisis is not necessary and not right. We need to have the conviction that we can trust ourselves to step out and speak on it and lead. And I think part of what this community helped me see is that the future isn't written yet, that anything really is possible. And when you think about collective actions and big movements, um, there's this thing, and I, you know, I read about this recently in the BBC. Uh, I have the, I, I think I have the, the note um, in the Black Literature versus the Climate Emergency Conference. Basically, it says anytime 3.5% of the population gets involved in a nonviolent movement, 
Historically, anytime that has happened, that movement has won. Now, the climate movement is working on a sort of a shorter clock than many of the other movements. But when you think about that, that really we're looking for 3.5% of the population to get really active and to fight really hard and make a difference. And that, you know, by the IPCC's most recent report, we have until 2025 for our fossil fuel emissions to peak. This feels doable. And I think holding that perspective that the future isn't written yet and what happens in the future depends upon what we do now is both um, creates that sense of possibility and inspiration for us to take action. Well, Aya, I know that this is a labor of love and there's not this big pot of money that you and Brooke are working with. Sometimes people think that there, there is and when publishing is involved. Um, but, but that said, you've structured this as a traditional imprint and you're paying small advances. Um, you're not printing print books, but, but there, you do have audiobooks and eBooks. So I just want to put a shout out there on behalf of both of you that you're looking for a couple or a few donors, or maybe Mackenzie Scott, you know, could, could give a lot of money. So I'll just conjure that for you. And, Thank you. Uh, and yeah, while Mackenzie's at it, she can also donate to NaNoWriMo, of course. But yeah, I wish you, you know, luck in finding the right partners to support you to finance this because, you know, it's such a meaningful endeavor. And, and with that in closing, I'd love you just to speak about, you know, this kind of work, you know, passion work, pro bono work, uh, what is driving you to do this? Well, I think one of the things that drives me is, like I said, I really want to interrupt what feels like a nasty rumor going on about going around about the climate crisis that we've already lost, that hope is lost, that uh, there's nothing we can do that, um, you know, the best we can hope for is just sort of to distract ourselves and, um, you know, anxiously wait uh, for the bad news to roll in, that that's actually not true. And really part of what shifts things for people is stories. Um, And, you know, I think a lot about the hero's journey, you know, and the story of the hero's journey is, you know, you have this group of people, all hope is lost, you know, but then at some point, the, you know, the hero or the group of heroes realize that the things standing in their way was really within themselves. And, you know, that if they believe in themselves, they can triumph. And, you know, in the hero's journey, um, you know, the monomyth, Joseph Campbell talks about, like, every culture sort of has this story. And, you know, for me, I've just decided at this point in my life to believe that Every culture in the world has some version of this story because maybe this is the story of humanity, that we are this group of people that are living in the 11th hour now, right? The chips are down, the news keeps getting worse, you know, it looks like all hope is lost, but wait, you know, somehow they decided to band together and they turned it around. Um, And I can't guarantee that that'll happen. But here's what I do know. Let's start telling that story and let's start leaning into that story and let's start imagining what would happen if large numbers of people got on board with that story and 
you know, the idea of spreading that story and inspiring and encouraging authors to write that story and create an avalanche of books coming out in countries like the United States that are in a position to make the biggest impact in the climate crisis. Nothing in this moment as a writer and, you know, a cultural worker gets me as excited about the future as imagining this avalanche of books um, showing up to offer that this could be our future. Well, let's end on that note, Aya. Let us create an avalanche of books for readers out there. And thank you for this partnership. I'm grateful and I just admire your passion. And let's do this thing. Woo! Yes. Thank you, Brooke. (laughs) Thank you so much, Aya. Thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, this is a trend we know already, but it's just ever more so the case, and it feels like an appropriate one for this week's episode, and that's readers influencing content more than ever. And given that we talked with David Yoon about his new romance imprint centering BIPOC characters, and this week we're talking about Aya, uh, about her inspiration for Fighting Chance books, it's just all of a piece, uh, and that's that people have an ear to the ground on what readers want, and these spaces are being provider uh, provided where readers can find the content that they want. Um, And I'm really happy to be a person who has a stake in this trend. We've been seeing this, of course, with the rise first of Bookstagram, but much more so recently with TikTok, which is on every publisher's mind. Um, You know, and TikTok's where, you know, the readers are influencing not just what books are breaking out, but actually driving acquisition decisions by publishers who are noticing trends and then doing what content creators do, which is, you know, try to replicate successes. Right, which we know, of course, can be very hit or miss, but I did appreciate in one of these articles um, that readers are getting the kudos <laughs> that they deserve. Uh, there was one, the one I'm referring to is from NBC and author Adam Silvera uh, had said in that piece, the readers are the stars. They are the ones who are creating bestsellers in ways that we cannot organically produce for ourselves. And I know that a lot of the true influencers online would love to find a way to get more than kudos, probably to get paid for the impact they're having on, you know, rising a book to the level of being a bestseller. But the thing that makes TikTok or book talk work is the authenticity. You know, it's the fact that people are so passionate about their reads and their recommendations and that drives the influence. And so that's what I like about it. Um, And maybe, you know, gratitude and kudos from authors is actually enough. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see this trend continuing more and more. And I read recently that publishers are gathering information through surveys and quizzes about what their audience wants to read. And that actually feels unprecedented to me in the book publishing world that's always been known for, you know, just being curators and or arbiters of taste. And I often tell this story, which I'll tell here again, but my, my wife um, years ago gave her middle grade novel to a kind of like a focus group with my daughter's 13 and 14 year old friends. And all of the parts of the novel that they liked and thought were the best, her very adult New York City editor wanted to cut. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I've always questioned that whole process of book acquisition and editing as a result of that, how out of touch um, New York publishers can be with their actual readership. And so I'm 
it's it's great that we're seeing a shift now, and I think that shift is is happening in part because of the aftermath of all the social justice change and DEI awareness going on in the country, and and maybe those arbiters of tastes are realizing that they're arbiters of a very particular and siloed kind of taste. Yeah, I mean, I think the self-aware ones are realizing that because it's just so clear in a story like the one that you tell about Heather's novel is just like so obvious, duh. Um, and and content curators are everywhere. You know, publishers actually want to cater to these influencers, of course, young readers at large, and young readers are the ones who are on book talk and they're the ones who are engaged and influencing other people. And so, you know, it's a good trend all in all. I certainly came of age in that exact publishing environment you're talking about. About where we just like acted like we knew our audience when really we didn't is like a figment of our imaginations and as long as the books sell then you think you know and you're just like trying to replicate that over and over again and so actually having reader feedback I mean imagine that what a novel concept uh, you know knowing what readers want it's a huge boon for publishers generally and I think the difference is that people are actually listening <laughs> in ways that they haven't before and obviously it's good for readers too. Yeah, this seems like it's the very last industry that has learned this. <laughs> I grew up with the phrase, the customer is always right, meaning bring the customer, the reader into the conversation, but better late than never. And we will never be late for you here at Right Minded. We're a weekly podcast, so invite your friends to join you in our creative conversations. I want to say that Brooke and I are, are kind of like that old saying about Postman. We'll be there for you, no matter if it's sleeting or snowing or raining. And in fact, we, we recently recorded episodes through, through COVID and illness caused by a COVID booster. So nothing is going to stop us from bringing you the health of being right-minded. <laughs> so we'll see you next week with another lively conversation about the thing that sustains us. Good stories.